Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 9th, 2019. This is episode 2487 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, 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 so it's time for a listener, uh, I'm sorry, an expert counsel Q&A show. I've got a pretty good lineup of experts for you today. I shook the piker tree over the last couple of weeks, man, and the pikers fell out. I mean, we got a bunch of content in for the expert council now. I'm probably good for another week and a half. Uh, so if, a, if they get a little bit back to me, we're good for another two weeks. We've got three weeks of content basically sitting on the deck right now. So I gave you a bit of a longer list today. Here's what we've got today. Uh, number one, Gary Collins is going to talk about exercises to maintain good, good body posture, specifically as we age. Probably something I need to do, spending all my time in this damn chair leaned over a microphone. Um, then we have a question about, you know those companies that say for X dollars a month, we'll put solar panels on your roof? Uh, Sean, Sean Mills is going to talk about that and tell you the reality behind them. Uh, doing a full custom rebuild of a classic car or truck, maybe one that's not a classic yet, but you hope to make it into one, and putting significant investment into it. That's something a lot of us want to do uh, one way or another. A lot of us have our, our dream car that we'd like to find someday and rebuild. Derek Bonpietro is going to talk about that. Uh, and we're going to be talking about testing of dairy cattle for raw milk production. Dr. Kelly does a good job on this, but we will have to respectably disagree a little bit on our take on raw milk, and I'll say a few words on that when we get there. Uh, using poultry to reduce insect pests, specifically meat birds, with Ben Falk, some he knows quite a bit about. Uh, restoring completely and totally depleted garden soil. Uh, somebody's been gardening for a long time, but their soil is just dust. All they've ever done is just dump 10-10-10 fertilizer on it. Jeff Lawton will talk about how to do that. And I'm going to talk a little bit on that one about how the fertilizer isn't the problem. Fertilizer that people use, commercial fertilizer, I'm not in love with the stuff, but it's not the problem in of itself. It's what it leads to. And, and, and how if you're going to insist on using it, it doesn't have to. We'll talk about both of those things on that question. And then I have a question on the genesis of Survival Podcast, specifically at the point that I realized I could take it into something full-time, and a question about the future as well with a little bit of Monty Python thrown into the question for good measure. So this should be a fun show. Before we get into all that, let's take a look at what happened this week in history. Uh, this actually happened tomorrow, the 10th of August in 1984, so 35 years ago, one day shy of that today, um, Red Dawn was released. That's not a big historical thing in of itself, but it is probably one of the movies that just about every prepper has seen and knows better. If you're a, a real prepper, you know better than to get too deep into the Red Dawn fantasy, but there's, there is something about that movie and the time that it came out and what was going on in the world that even though it was pretty hokey, if you think about the original Red Dawn, it was pretty hokey, some of the stuff in it, but it had a, a weird air of realism in it at the same time. But the big thing historically about that movie, it was the first ever PG-13 movie. And of all the things that happened this week in history, the reason I talk, decided to talk about this one is I remember it, and I was 12 years old, and I, I realized that, like, The anarchist bent in, in humans as a whole just goes deep. So this thing came out, and they made a big deal out of this, that it was a PG-13 movie, and you had to 
parents were strongly cautioned, and you weren't even supposed to get in there unless you were at least 13 years old without a parent or guardian. So you could see it if you were eight, but you had to have your mom or your daddy with you and what have you. And So this may be hard for a lot of people to understand today that aren't, you know, at least in their 40s. In the 80s, kids just went and did shit on their own all the time. So most of the places we went, we just all got on bicycles and rode there. There were bike racks way more than there are today because kids were mobile on bicycles because they didn't have cars yet. But where I lived, the, uh, the the movie theater was just a bit beyond what we were comfortable with doing. So the way we went to movies is you'd get somebody's parents to drop you off and either them or another group of parents to pick you up, and you just were dropped off at the mall and the movie theater for the day. So you might be going to an hour-and-a-half, two-hour movie, but you might be there for four or five hours. That was just how things were in the 1980s for kids that were 10, 11, 12 years old. And, I mean, yes, down to 10-year-olds. So when this came out, I was 12. I was one year shy, though I don't know what kind of identification a 13-year-old would have had in 1984 to prove that they were 13. A lot of my friends were 13. A lot of my friends were 11. So we had this pretty big group. That took us to the movies. Nobody asked what the hell we wanted to see. Nobody cared. And we all wanted to go see Red Dawn. So we all just walked our happy ass up, bought tickets, and walked in. No one ever said a word. The PG-13 rating was the most meaningless restriction ever placed on anything. It may have gotten a few parents to pay attention, but I think that most parents in the 80s, I mean, this is the latchkey kid generation, didn't care. So we were rebellious in our move and going to see a movie about a rebellion. And then what did we all go do? What did we do the next weekend after that? We all went out in the woods and played Red Dawn with each other with toy guns, pretending to shoot each other by saying bang, and when you got killed, you had to count to ten. It was kind of like a mixture of hide-and-go-seek, tag, and uh, air, you know, airsoft or, or paintball before such a thing existed. And somehow none of us knocked over any liquor stores or robbed them or anything like that. Uh, none of us were, you know, uh, hoodlums causing problems. Uh, none of us turned into gangbangers. We all turned into fairly outstanding people, as far as I know, with the people I was friends with back then. So maybe, just maybe, we can learn some things from the past. Not always looking at what people did wrong, but maybe what people did right. I think the way that we let kids run their own lives to a large degree with minimal oversight, unless they were getting into shit they weren't supposed to get into, in the 80s, was a, in the 70s too, was a pretty damn solid way to do things. I, I look at myself, the people a little bit older than me and a little bit younger than me, and I see us as the last truly free generation that really knew freedom as a child. And it, it, it hurts me a bit that today's children will never know uh, the revolutionary fervor that comes with sneaking into a PG-13 movie when no one really cared. Anyway, with that, before we get to our uh, stuff for expert counsel today, let me remind you, you are running out of time if you want to be on episode 2500. Um, I'm going to need a couple days at least to put that together. Uh, we're only, what, 13 episodes away? What is? What did I say today's episode? Is th yeah, we're 13 episodes away. Uh, you probably got about two weeks maximum to call the jerk line and tell us how TSP has made your life just a little bit better. The number to call the jerk line, 877-644-1345. Another real quick announcement here. Hey, MeWe Monday. If you are on social media, get over to MeWe, look me up, friend me up, uh, join the TSP uh, forum, hang the TSP Hangout group, and on Monday, be part of MeWe Mondays. I'm probably going to do this Monday again because, yes, the expert council got me a bunch of stuff. Um, 
but it's, it's, it's feast or famine with those guys, right? So it's time to get another big group of questions in. So I'm probably going to come in there and get one question for every expert council member and immediately send them, and then we'll chat about whatever. We'll do that from 10 to about 10 to 11 on Monday morning with MeWe Monday. And if you're not part of the MeWe revolution and Operation Zuckerberg yet, if you use social media anyway, give it a shot. If you don't use social media, you don't, no big deal. All right, so with that, we got a question for Gary Collins on as we age and our posture starts to ebb a little bit, uh, what are some exercises and practices we can do uh, to maintain our posture? And it's probably more important than most people realize um, I am a believer in chiropractic care, and that has a lot to do with the shape of the spine and how we carry ourselves and the shape of the neck as well. Um, and postures is a big part of that. So, hey, Gary, uh, what say you on keeping your posture right? Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, where we talk about all things making your life better. Couple quick announcements. Be on the lookout for the fourth book in my Simple Life series. It is going to be called The Simple Life Guide to Financial Freedom. I'm really excited about this book. I think it's a game changer. Also, be on the lookout for my new podcast coming out hopefully right around September, second week. Your Better Life, Make It Simple, Stupid. You're going to like this podcast. It's going to be good. So be on the lookout for those things. Now, uh, the question of posture as we get older. Well, we all deal with this. I deal with it as well. I'm going to give you three really basic exercises to do. The first one, which is anytime, any age, is planks. Planks are the easiest thing to do. They're basically a whole body contraction, but they specifically help your back, your lower back. So, you know, go look at videos, but simply it's like doing a static push-up, but instead of on your hands, you're on your elbows and forearms, and you just hold that position 30 to 60 seconds at a time. The next one is pay attention to your posture while you're sitting or standing. Simply push your shoulders back, push your neck back a little bit, pinch your shoulders, and just sit erect. Just pay attention to it, and it'll help build those muscles to increase your posture. Now, what you can also do with that is you can do contractions as exercise. So in, uh, instead of uh, basically doing what I just told you, basically you will contract the muscles 30 seconds, 15, 30 seconds. Do that, you know, four, eight times a day, and that will start to build the muscles too. But one of the biggest thing is just paying attention to your posture. You catch on that you're slouching, stop slouching, you know, sit up straight. And we always heard that, right? Your mom, grandma yelling at you, sit up straight, but that's true. And that will help your posture. I hope that helps guys. It is really that simple. Hence the simple life. Duh. Um, but, uh, remember I'm an MSB, uh, member, or corporate member, so my business in there, all you members, you get 10% off your entire order at thesimplelifenow.com. And now I'm sitting just a little bit straighter in my chair. Pay attention to your posture. Good advice. I will add in, um, and you can do any one of these three without becoming like some sort of uh, a major practitioner dedicating your life to it, driving around with a bumper sticker that says you do it. Uh, yoga. Quijong or Tai Chi, and Tai Chi is the one that I have some experience with. Uh, even just taking maybe a, a month or two of Tai Chi classes and learning some basic forms and then making that part of 
you know, your weekly routine, maybe three or four times a week doing basic Tai Chi forms. Uh, Qigong is a very similar uh, discipline. Yoga is actually very different, but it has very much the same effect. And if you look at, you know, Indian, Asian societies where it is very common that the, the, the majority of people practice some level of this as a form of exercise, not necessarily with Tai Chi actually can be a martial art, but it also can be more just a mind-body exercise. Um, they tend to age better than we do. I think there's more to it than that. Um, diet has a lot to do with it. Stress levels have a lot to do with it, etc. Uh, Multi-generational thinking has a lot more to do with it. Family bonds have a lot more to do with it, a lot to do with it as well. But I think that the the the, the discipline that is uh, those types of exercises has a lot to do with the overall health of the human body. Posture, aging more eloquently, if that's the way to look at it. Uh, and I'll tell you another thing, I think that that type of exercise or the exercises Gary had or anything that's load-bearing, making the body bear its own weight other than just to get up and go get the remote and sit back down, especially for females, osteoporosis. So if, if you said to me, like, what is the most valuable martial art I can take up? If you don't have a lot of um, physical training in your life, you might be surprised. I probably would say Tai Chi. And the reason I would say that is not anything to do with self-defense. It's the health benefits that are going to be you're, – you're, you might use the benefits of learning jiu-jitsu or, or, or sistema or boxing or any uh, hand-to-hand combat. You might use it. And you will get some health benefit from training in any of those disciplines. But Tai Chi is the one that, you, like I said, you can learn – enough to self-practice. And it's always good to have someone that knows what they're doing, correct your form and what have you. But even if it ain't perfect, right, it's a slow movement and it, it, it helps center the mind. And I think it's one of the better things that we can do for ourselves as we age. Um, and again, learning a few different forms, basic movement, basic hold uh, of posture, etc., cetera, uh, I think can be really valuable to us both mentally and emotionally. And you can use the word spiritually if that's a word you choose to use. I do, but if you don't, I understand. Uh, next up, we have a question on those, you know, hey, for X dollars a month, we'll put solar panels on your home. Sent that to Sean Mills. Uh, figured if I send it to Stephen Harris, he might have an aneurysm over it. So, Sean, take it away. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with Hack My Solar. And today I've got a question from Bryce. Bryce says, are companies like Vivint Solar with 20-year payment plans on solar systems a good option to get your home on solar? Details. I was contacted by Vivint Solar with an offer to put home, put my home on solar power. We had high energy bills last year, averaged about $175 a month because of two roommates who were staying at our home to help them out. Our highest electrical bill this year has been $130. Vivint's offer is a 20-year loan for $186 a month. This is grid-tied with net metering with no battery bank to switch to if the power goes out, which is a concern for me because I live in Florida with hurricanes, although I question how durable panels hold up to hurricanes to begin with. There would be a 20-year warranty on the system through Vivint. Okay, first let's talk about the hurricanes. Um, anything that's that's going to hit uh, your house in, in, a, in a good hurricane is going to take the panels out along with everything else, and it should be covered by, by the insurance. 
Um, most insurance companies I have talked to consider essentially once you put solar panels on, they insure it just like they would a roof. So if your solar array flies off, uh, just like if your roof flies off, your insurance company is going to take care of getting it replaced. Um, my personal opinion here is that third-party lease solar systems are not a good deal, but uh, a company that's just offering to finance your uh, solar array that you own once it's paid off, that could be a good deal, okay? So the, what I'm talking about here is there are, there are companies out there that are offering uh, to come in, install your panels, and... Um, basically put you on a lease plan, right? So in 20 years, they come out and either take their panels back or they put new panels on and start up a new lease. That's not a great plan. It doesn't transfer with the house. It can actually cause problems when you're going to buy a house. Um, and the reality is, is that, you know, I think the price of solar systems are going to continue to go down and that locks you into a system for 20 years with, with not the ability to um, make a change. And it's a system that you don't own. It's, it's one thing to lock yourself in for 20 years and you own it, right? You pay cash, you own the system, and, and then it's paying itself back by reduced power bills. A lot of these companies, uh, not only are they hitting you with, you know, their profit and margin and marketing costs and everything else, in the cost of their system, but they're taking the federal tax rebate. So you're not even getting to take that off of the cost of your, your house, which really helps if you're going to do solar, that helps to, to get the solar system in place at the, the current 30% tax rebate that does go down after this year, but it's still going to be in place for at least a couple more years. And who knows what happens, um, you know, after the next election, you know, that's the thing about laws is they sound good now, but they can be rewritten really easily. Um, so I personally, I, I don't like the idea uh, of the lease system, the, the, just a company that's financing it, that can work, but you just gotta, you gotta get in Excel and you've got to, uh, you gotta make sure the numbers work for you. I mean, you're 175 bucks a month last year, their options 186 per month, you know, so that's, that's, you know, so A, we're going to pay more during the time of the year that we were, we were, uh, not using that much electricity, but less, you know, in the, in the high uses portions of the year. So that's great. But, and that $175 bill this year might be a $200 bill in four, three or four years. And it might be a $300 bill in 20 years. Whereas you're still locked into that 186 per month. That's one of the good things about solar is you buy once and you cry once. Once the panel's up, it might take a while to pay off, but as you're, cost of electricity goes up, that payback horizon gets closer. Um, you know, I'll say this is just conjecture on my part, but I think that as solar continues to spread, the cost continues to go down, um, and, and, and at the same time, car ownership becomes or begins to become the exception rather than the rule, you're going to see big banks pivot from financing automobiles to financing solar installations. I think it's a it's an easy play for them. Uh, it's something that they look at and can say, okay, well, this business model is dying and this one is growing, so how can we get a piece of it? And I think you're going to see some economies of scale that come along with that, uh, that, that make that start to be a good deal. 
And, you know, I don't necessarily agree with California's rule to mandate solar on all new residential buildings. But the fact that they're building the cost of these arrays into the mortgage and into the construction costs uh, while everything else is going on, does it makes it cheaper than doing it after the house is built. And it's, it makes it easier to swallow the price tag because you're bu just building it into the mortgage. Um, so with that, I hope I answered your question. I don't love them, but if XL says do it, then pull the trigger, Bryce. Um, if you guys have more questions, get them to Jack and I will answer them. Uh, you can also hit me up on Facebook. I'm on there a decent amount. I'm, I'm slowly transitioning over to MeWe. So I'm there, Sean Mills on MeWe. And uh, you could send me any emails to hackmysolar at gmail.com. Well, thanks, everyone, and have a great one. I generally don't like it, and, and I'm going to tell you the biggest reason why. What do I always say about when you buy a house? And you factor in your exit strategy. So one of the homes that my daughter-in-law and my son looked at when they were home shopping was one that had one of these deals. And it was a long-term lease. I think it was 20 years. And when we ran the numbers in Excel, uh, they didn't work. They did not work. They were much better off without the burden of that cost added on top of a home that they were already buying more than I wanted them to. So you might think that by doing this, you increase the value of your home to a potential buyer. I think if you have a paid-for solar array on your roof, that is true. I think if you have a contract that transfers to the new homeowner, it can be true or it can be false. I don't like variables that I can't control when it comes to the single largest investment that I will probably ever make in my life, uh, real estate. So that's one of my big reasons not to do this. I do think solar is going to get cheaper and cheaper. I do think financing is going to get cheaper and cheaper. Um, you you got to think about it this way. Companies do not offer creative financing to help you. They offer it to help them. Now, that can be because if I do it this way, I can sell more because it's cheaper out of pocket for my customer. It also can be I can make more money this way because long-term it's better for me. And so you have to ask yourself why they're not financing these things on like a 60-month contract. People buy cars like that all the time. Uh, why are they creating this long-term uh, cost basis scenario? And the, and the answer is probably because you're going to pay them the total cost within about five years and be hooked into them for 15 more. That, that's probably it's probably going to hit somewhere about there. So always price it, doing it individually, even having a contractor do parts of it. And whenever you're doing solar, always think about how can I scale it up in time. A lot of times, once you put solar in. Uh, adding more is really, really easy and really, really cheap. And when certain opportunities come up, you can just kind of bolt it on Lego style. Uh, with that, let's take another one. This one on uh, a raw milk production. Though the, the person asking the question never even said raw. They said fresh milk. I'm assuming they mean raw. That's what Dr. Kelly's assuming. I'm going to come back with my comments on my feelings about the safety of raw milk. Hi, Jack and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly here to answer all your furry pet questions. Today's question began, does Dr. Kelly just do small animals? Our beef vet doesn't even want to discuss dairy cow testing. If I were to sell a milk cow, what are the minimum tests that should be done for safe use of fresh milk? 
Now, while cattle aren't a typical species for me to work on in my daily practice life, I did some background research for you on the topic from a veterinary perspective and got some recommendations. And this is a bit of a loaded question, though, and my answer may not be popular, so I realize that. Um, unfortunately, no amount of testing will say that milk is safe. And this may be why some vets are hesitant, especially if dairy cattle aren't their main thing, um, to even discuss it, since they don't want to be held responsible if someone said the tests are negative, so the milk is safe, and then someone buys that or someone else drinks it and gets sick, and then they come after the vet because someone laid out that the vet said it was okay. Um, now, most vets, and myself included, are also pretty raw, um, anti-raw milk since we've been trained in all the possible bad scenarios that can happen with it. Um, there are multiple tests you could feasibly run, but you have to bear in mind a negative test is just a snapshot in time. So if the milk tests negative one day, it means nothing concerning tomorrow's, next week's, or even next month's samples, as lots of pathogens can be shed intermittently, so you may not always catch them. And if you want to be doing screening to help catch problems but not guarantee safety, you could consider the following tests. You can do blood tests for brucella titer and toxoplasmosis titer. Um, you'd need milk testing for listeria, campylobacter, leptoculture, salmonella culture, skin, intradermal skin testing for tuberculosis, um, fecal flotation for cryptosporidia and culture for salmonella, and you could culture feces and milk for listeria as well. Um, the most important ones could potentially be the brucellosis, tuberculosis, and salmonella, um, but really your kind of biggest everyday problem is just dealing with the bacteria in the milk, things like staph, strep, E. coli, etc. Now, handling procedures of the milking process and handling of the milk immediately after also affect the safety. So having super clean milking procedures, sanitizing milking equipment, and cooling the milk rapidly can really help. Um, milk that isn't cooled quickly enough can increase the pathogen load. So in the right environment, E. coli can double every 20 minutes. Um, so it takes a long time for milk to cool in the fridge, so you really have to have a system for chilling it first and then putting it into the refrigerator. Um, some of this you have to consider your own risk tolerance. Um, I personally am not a fan of raw milk, and I definitely wouldn't let my kids drink it, just since their immune systems are going to be at even higher risk for problems developing, but that's me. Now, I'll admit, you know, to sneak in some raw cookie dough now and again and playing the Russian cookie dough roulette, um, but my kids don't know that you can eat it raw. Um, and I guess I'm a mean mom like that, but it's the most of the time it's fine until the one time it's not. Um, and that one time can have potential to be pretty bad. And that's the same with the raw milk. So um, the other thing to consider would be home pasteurizing, that you still get the advantages of the higher fat content than the store-bought milk um, and the taste and the self-sustaining aspect and advantages of having your own dairy cow, but with less risk. Um, so thanks for your question, and hopefully that gave you some ideas. Um, remember all, while I'm a veterinarian, I'm not your veterinarian, so my recommendations are just intended to give a ballpark idea of what you can expect from your veterinarian. Thanks, Jack, and have a great weekend, everybody. So what I like there is it is an honest answer about what you can and can't test for, and it's an answer about how testing is limited in what it can do because it tells you where you're at today, and unless you're going to test every day, you don't know where you're at tomorrow, next week, next month, etc. However, I find this interesting that every doctor I know thinks this way. And it's very similar to the way police officers think. Because police officers know how many people steal shit, they get freaked out about stuff. I remember I parked my car in the street 
versus my driveway, and my brother-in-law was just obsessed with the fact that it made it more likely that somebody's going to break into my car. Now, I'm, I'm talking about a place where my driveway and the street are about three feet apart. It was actually preposterous, but because he sees the underbelly of society all the time, that's where his mind always is, and that's how he's trained. And that's how I feel doctors are, whether they're vets, whether they're medical doctors. Whatever they're taught is true, and no matter what evidence is presented in contrary to it, until the authority they answer to, which is whatever group or conglomerate they turn towards, says that the, the, the truth has changed, they will not change. You can't, you cannot, I've done it with Doc Bones, you cannot have a logical discussion with people who have been convinced of something. And it's why I don't, it, it, it's the same thing in many disciplines of science. I know global warming would be the first thing you think of. I'm not even talking about that. If you look at what the work of like uh, a Graham, Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson have done in the work of archaeology and geology, uh, you see that the dogma is just ingrained there. You can show conclusive evidence that even though the theory you're proposing may not be correct, that the one they're grabbing onto has no basis in reality at all, and they will call you, you know, all kinds of names. I've, you know, I've seen it happen to those guys. And I, I just when I look at raw milk, the concept that it's, you know, somehow really dangerous and whatever, I'm just, it, it boggles my mind. We're talking about a substance that man's used for thousands and thousands of years uh, with, with relative safety, and is there a risk? There's a risk to putting your shoes on and going out the damn door. Um, if you go back to when all milk was raw milk, there was a whole lot less people getting sick and dying from it than people to get injured and killed in cars. So if you're not going to drink raw milk because it's dangerous, you know, assuming I love the comment about good sanitation practices and all, okay? I love that. Um, but if you're not, but if as long as that's in place and you're not going to drink or use any kind of raw milk product because oh my God there could be, then you better not get in a car. You better not get your ass. Thirty three thousand people got their ass killed last year in a car. Uh, well over a million people ended up in serious hospitalization from getting in a car. Compare that to raw milk. Even if you just took it to well, how, you know, if you did it per capita type thing, where you figure out well how many cars are there, how many people, how many people consumed raw milk last year, and you averaged it out, it's pathetic the difference. How much more dangerous a car is than raw milk? Um, I, 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 it, it boggles my mind. It really does on one level. On the other level, I completely understand it. The only reason I'm even bringing it up is we can't move forward as a society, if we continue to think this way. This concept that once you're trained and taught something, that it's now like canonized biblical truth, it is ridiculous. And people will defend an idea that has been clearly demonstrated to be false because they were taught that it was true. And once the person teaches that it's true, it becomes even more entrenched. If the person writes down that it's true, if the person builds a, a career on that being the truth, well, then it will be defended to the death. And I, I just think it's time that we back up and take a little bit more of a, a broad look. Well, I know all the bad things that could happen. Well, what are the percentiles of that? What are What is the actual risk associated with it compared to things we do every day like flying in an airplane or driving a car or riding a bicycle or taking a martial arts class or jumping out of an airplane and skydiving you probably have a bigger chance of doing the, the 90 foot bounce than you do of getting hurt from raw milk but that doesn't mean people aren't going to 
you know, skydive. I just think that we have gotten to a point where we want to be bubble wrapped as a society and government's more willing to do it. So anyway, I've said my piece. Let's go on. Let's talk about rebuilding a classic car. And I'm talking about a major rebuild. Derek Von Pietro will talk about that. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I got an interesting one on an old square-nosed suburban build, so let's dig into it. The question is pretty complex, along with a lot of the information, so I'm going to summarize this as quick as possible. It's got an 85 half-ton Suburban with barn doors, which is an awesome truck, and with the barn doors is relatively rare, especially in my neck of the woods. Uh, the previous owner put a 329 out of a Camaro with an old three-speed automatic, which means that it probably wasn't rebuilt properly because it never had a 329 so i could imagine that some of it has been hacked at some point but the interior and exterior needs complete restoration it's got 35 inch tires with about six inches of lift i want this to be the most reliable long-lasting vehicle possible be able to do general maintenance with my kid in the driveway without a lot of specialty tools i want this vehicle to drive for a very long time also wants a bit of vanity factor as far as a good looking truck with uh, you know big wheels etc and that everybody else is kind of wanting to drive. So I hear you on that. Uh, I found a shop that could possibly do what he's looking for for about thirty-five to $40,000. He's got a lot of accessories he wants, like a ham radio, typical lights, winch, et cetera, uh, with some other power features and things like that. I think a lot of people that are looking for a, like, quote-unquote, uh, exploration rig or expedition rig, uh, pretty common build with what you've described. Usage is going to be uh, grocery getter, family vacations, camping, hunting. Looking to see about a, maybe a Cummins swap. Not sure about the transmission or any kind of traction-aiding devices like locking differentials and suspension upgrades. I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible to give people that are looking to do vehicle builds with this extent of a project kind of a general direction to go in rather than like give you exact direct answers on some of the items for this truck. Now I will say that this is a great platform to build off because they were fairly rugged trucks to begin with. They're still around. Parts are absolutely plentiful and you can pretty much build these into whatever you want and they're going to retain value. And that's probably one of the biggest items. I know Jack preaches everything by the Excel spreadsheet and you're going to put a bunch of money into this and you don't want a, a vehicle that no one else would ever, ever buy because you never know down the road you might want to sell this or it needs to have some value. You can't just dump 40 grand into a truck and never be able to sell it for past five. It just doesn't make any sense. That means that I would stay away from any kind of oddities or really high-end custom stuff because you eventually put your vehicle build into unobtainium, as I like to call it. Any kind of major engine or driveline swap, even though on this particular truck, since it's a half-ton, I wouldn't go above 35-inch tires, nor would I put a diesel in it with half-ton axles, you would definitely want a full one-ton driveline. Now, they never made a one-ton Suburban. The good news is that that particular matching truck, the K30 Silverado, you can put the axles directly underneath the Suburban. You might have to move the rear spring perches, but realistically, they pretty much bolt right in, along with the steering and the brakes, etc., now, there are some upgrades you can do to those things, like gears and lockers and steering, which make the truck work a lot better. And obviously, all of that needs to be budgeted. Uh, but you can make a full one-ton upgrade and have the ability to run a big horsepower engine or a diesel, um, which you would never be able to do with a half-ton or run a larger tire. Now, a Cummins diesel in a Suburban, that's a big engine. That's a lot of engine. It's tall, it's long, and it's very heavy. It's a big engine. There are kits available. You're going to need a cross member and a motor mount kit. There's going to be a lot of fabrication to get your air conditioning, power steering, and alternator to work correctly. You know, not exactly a bolt-in situation, but 
but there's a lot of parts available to make this happen. Again, you really should be listing out all these parts that you're going to need, the pricing and your labor. Now, the labor can be free if you're doing it, but do you have the capability of putting one of these in? And sometimes with an engine like this, it's not necessarily your personal capabilities. Do you have a shop space big enough? You're not going to do the old backyard redneck hoisted up there with a piece of rope over a tree limb. It's a big engine. You need a serious overhead lift in order to do this. Uh, the, the cheapo Harbor Freight engine crane, not going to work with a Cummins. Are you capable of doing this in your workspace? certainly would be a lot easier and a lot friendlier on the budget, almost to the tune of a third to half the price to go with, say, something like an LS engine. A 5.3 with a four-speed heavy-duty automatic, uh, you can find those a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. Parts availability is awesome. And yeah, it's not going to have the cool factor or the noise and the economy, but you know something? It's a good engine. Again, you got to figure out, do I have the money? Do I have the capability and the shop space to put the Cummins in there? Now, you may be able to get away with running some 35s if you're a little light on the throttle pedal with your half-ton existing axles, and you could put, say, an LS engine in with a four-speed automatic and still keep it relatively light duty, and obviously that's going to save you a bit of money, and maybe down the road you can put the heavier-duty axles if you want, and I would, this probably would recommend at some point if you plan on doing what you want to do with this, like an expedition or search and rescue or camping truck, but that can be done down the road. If you're doing a Cummins swap, not going to happen. That's a necessary upgrade with that power plant. Again, do you want to do all of this at once, or do you want to stagger this build for your budget and time? To talk about some very common upgrades on the Square Nose Chevy platform, crossover steering on the front end is going to give the vehicle a lot better steering. There's a shackle flip that you can do on the back, which will um, change some geometry around and give you a little bit better ride. And this is a great platform. I have a pair of 84 trucks. I have a Cuck V with a 6.2 diesel. And even though it's slow, it's reliable, and it works great. And then I also have a matching 84 Suburban, and I'm in the process of putting an 8.1 big block in. Both of the trucks work great with not a lot of money. So I would break this down really into, like, maybe three main builds. Be honest with your budget. Fill that Excel spreadsheet out. Be very accurate with the dollar amounts and the time frames and what your goals are because if you get halfway through it and you lied to yourself and you don't have the budget to finish the diesel swap, now you have a truck that doesn't work. And don't say, like, oh, I can put a Cummins in it for, you know, $2,000 when, you know, a, a used crate engine is going to cost you four grand or a remand crate engine might cost you eight grand. Those are real numbers. You've got to factor that in. So don't lie to yourself. The first one I would do would probably be reuse your existing axles, the tire suspension, get a modern LS engine, maybe a 5.3 or a 6 liter in there with a four-speed automatic. You can probably reuse your transfer case. You might have to refit the drive shafts and have lengthened or shortened, but that's a pretty basic swap. You can do that in most backyards with a basic engine hoist. Endless amounts of parts to make that work as far as motor mounts and cross members, but that's a very easy one using a lot of the stuff you already have. The next step up is maybe I would do a 6-liter or an 8.1, uh, get a little bit more power out of it, spend a little bit more money to get that, but not much. Maybe do the axles now and get the gears and the lockers that you want and kind of get everything fitted the way you want now and spend the money. Um, of course, that's going to up your budget and your time frames. And then that's the next one would be the biggest one. That's a full refit. That's going to be the Cummins, uh, an NV4500 five-speed manual, or an Allison automatic or something that can handle that kind of power. An NP205 transfer case, that's a cast iron mammoth that's going to take that power or maybe an aftermarket uh, unit, but you're going to need to match the drive line to that engine, and that's a lot of engine. And then, of course, obviously, 
the axles and brand new drive shafts that are heavier duty and things like that. You've got the three different game plans, three different budgets, and maybe one of those you can fit money-wise and time-wise a little bit better. That's a, that's a question you have to answer for your particular vehicle. Resources to build a square nose Chevy or GMC, offroaddesign.com is a vendor that sells parts just for these specific vehicles. Both of my trucks have all of their parts for suspension, steering, brakes, etc. They're going to be a go-to for everything except the engine conversion. CK5, that's charliekilo5.com, is a forum that's going to have tons of square nose builds on there. Check that out. And also expeditionportal.com, there's a forum there as well that's going to have a lot of information for the equipment that you want to install with builds that match what you have. Sorry, guys, I went a little long on this one, but I hate for anybody to start a project, sink a bunch of money into it, and then not be able to finish a truck. And a truck like that should be on the road having a lot of fun so uh, don't get too far ahead of yourself good luck with the project and finish step one and then maybe once your kid is older do step three and put the cummins in it whatever you do make sure that it runs and make sure that you can use it check out affordabledcgenerators.com i got a new video up on the youtube channel for a power box basically like a do-it-yourself homebrew goal zero yeti got an inverter and some battery bank and stuff like that built into it so just got part one roughing in all the components Check it out if you like it, subscribe to it. Enjoy summer, guys. Happy Friday. Next up, we have a question for Darby Simpson on choosing a breed of pig for pastured poultry, specifically in an area that is deficient in tree cover. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life calling in for another TSP Expert Council question. This week, uh, we've got one from Zach. His question is, what breed of pigs work well on a grass diet with limited to no trees? Just grass on a rotational paddock system where a majority of their food will come from the pasture while my trees get established. And any other pieces of advice on this? I have beef and chicken customers that are wanting pork and was planning on waiting until I had more established trees for protection and supplemental feed but have requests so I thought I would try just pasture. Well, Zach... Um, I'll circle back to breeds um, here at the end of this, um, and this is something I've discussed before, um, and this is in my experience and in uh, talking with a lot of other people that, that have attempted to do this, there is not a breed in a production model, and I want to be sure and clarify, in a production model that's going to work well in an all-grass system with no supplemental feed. Now, if we're talking about homesteading, if we're talking about raising a handful of pigs a year, you know, a couple for us and, you know, a couple to sell, you can look at using uh, some breeds, some smaller breeds like the American uh, guinea hog or cooney coonies, things of that nature. Uh, There are some larger breeds, too. Although I don't have experience with them, I know some some guys will use like uh, old spots and and things of that nature that can gain a majority of their weight on pasture. If you've got really really good pasture, and I mean really good pasture, you you got to have a lot of alfalfa, <clears throat> a lot of clover. You've got to have protein out there. It can't just be grass. So when when you say grass, I think you're probably talking about lots of different species. If you're talking about grass, as in timothy and bluegrass and orchard grass and fescue, just true grasses, then this this whole thing's out the window completely. You've got to have a lot of proteins out there. 
Um, but in my limited experience uh, watching other people try to do this, uh, and it's not something I attempt. I raise my pigs in the forest. They're a forest animal. Personally, I think that's where they should be raised. Uh, they get supplemental feed. I have not seen a model where this works. Uh, I know a lot of people have tried it, and I, I've watched a lot of them fail. Uh, I think what they end up with, frankly, a lot of the time is really expensive breeding stock and promises that just can't be fulfilled, again, in a production setting, which is what you're talking about. Now, I don't know how many pigs you're talking about raising in a year. Uh, if you're talking about, hey, I want to try and finish, you know, four or six or eight, well, then you could look in at uh, bringing in supplemental, like, you know, maybe if you've got access to hickory nuts or acorns or something like that, but you're going to have to bring in a protein source and give it to the pigs while your trees get established. Um, other tips, uh, I really like the Premier One uh, pig fence for rotational grazing. Um, although, I, you know, I... I've gotten to know Greg Judy, and we've we've talked a lot at some conferences we've spoke at and stuff. And you know, he he raises pigs with like you know one or two hot wires. Um, and if they get out, no big deal. They they eventually come back, or they'll go find them and put them back, or whatever. And but he doesn't live in an area where that's an issue. You know, I, I've got a literally a major state highway that runs through my farm. So uh, 800 feet from my driveway, I've got semi trucks doing 70 miles an hour. Um, so I can't, I can't risk letting pigs get loose. So I like using the premier one, uh, pig fence for, for rotational purposes. Uh, if you had, if you've now, if you've got a really good tight high tensile fence system for your cows, then I think you could look at, okay, well maybe we'll use, you know, two or three reels. Um, you know, just like you'd use for cows. I, I like the, uh, uh, the stuff you can get from Kenco Fence Company. I really like the geared O'Brien reels and step-in posts, and then like an eight or nine-strand um, poly braid to, to put on that. I think you could use two or three of those and step-in posts, you know, to rotate your pigs. You're going to have to provide shade protection, um, and it's you're going to have to provide some way for them to to cool off with a wallow. Um, also, if you haven't ever had pigs, they root. I mean, they literally are, you know, four wheel drive tractors with a built in plow and they will destroy absolutely everything on your pasture. Um, if this is the same pasture that you are raising your pigs and cows on, I would strongly encourage you to consider, and I know this is going to sound like heresy, wringing their noses or they will absolutely destroy your pasture and you will have dead plants. You'll have holes that you can turn an ankle in or a, a cow can break a, break an ankle, uh, in, in no time. They'll absolutely tear it up. Now <laughs> I'm not trying to, you know, dis discourage you too much here, but I, I want to, as you're getting your trees established, I want to tell you a story. Uh, a few years ago, and this has actually been almost five years ago, I had the, the fortune of uh, getting to go on a private tour uh, with some other gentlemen that, that myself and, and Jack know, some of the guys from West Virginia. Um, and um, we got this private tour on Mark Shepard's farm. And Mark's tree system at that time was just about 20, 21 years old. It was very mature. There was so much stuff laying on the ground for pigs to eat. Um, it was amazing, 
But again, this is a 20 plus year old system. Lots of fruits, lots of nuts. Um, we got to dine on some of that pork. Uh, uh, Mark's wife and uh, one of their assistants graciously made us a meal. I will tell you it was the best pork I've ever had in my life, my own included. That's a tough thing for me to admit, but it was amazing because whatever pigs eat enhances the flavor of the pork. It's just the way that that tasty little animal works. Um, so I talked with Mark about his system, and what, what I want to express to you is that his, his stocking density in this 20-plus-year-old tree system that was super thick with a lot of production – Okay, and they weren't actually harvesting a whole lot because Mark was traveling, uh, doing a lot of speaking. So a lot of the stuff they might normally harvest uh, was was pig food. His stocking density on 15 acres of his farm was nine pigs, just nine. Uh, for me, retailing a pig um, piece by piece by piece, I, I can make about six or seven hundred bucks. So. If I can make six or seven hundred bucks, let's just round up. Let's say eight hundred dollars times nine. That's seven thousand dollars. It's not a whole lot of money, okay? Seven thousand two hundred bucks. Uh, and I have to have fifteen acres of highly established systems to do that. Now here's the kicker: Mark was still feeding them grain. I want to repeat that: Mark was still feeding them grain. He had to, and he told me like, "We have to. We have to give them something." Now, in his words. He gave them just enough so they wouldn't, you know, quote unquote, starve to death. So they had to go really forage to fatten up, and they can. Um, but you got to have a lot of trees. So what I'm trying to tell you is you're going to have to bring some food in. Now, if you don't want to use grain, that's fine, but then you're looking at bringing in nuts. It's going to be expensive. I don't know what your customers will pay, but you're going to have to supplement. They're, they're going to destroy your pasture. If you don't manage them properly, and even if you move them every day, which is tedious, they're probably still going to tear it up more than you like. Um, so I would encourage you to look for some pasture that you need cleaned out if you're going to do this um, and not put them on the same pasture as your cows. But then that's probably pasture that's not as good, and you're going to have to bring in more supplemental feed. It just kind of spirals. So those are my thoughts on this. Uh, I, I wish I had a better answer for you, but I think you're going to have to supplement them with, with feed. Uh, unless you're just raising a couple. So anyway, that's what I got for you, Zach. Uh, good luck. Keep us updated. Let us know how that works. Uh, hey, I want to mention to everybody, um, <clears throat> if you're interested, coming in October, and we'll have more details on this coming up soon, I am going to have a two-day workshop here in Indiana uh, with a good friend of mine, Luke Gross of Gross Family Farm. And again, it's only going to be two days. It's going to be very inexpensive uh, we'll have the details out on grassfedlife.co coming up shortly. Um, this is going to be the only workshop I'm planning on doing between now and possibly the end of 2020. I've got some other things going, uh, so I'm not doing any workshops next year uh, in the spring or summer or anything like that. We might maybe do one in the fall, but if you're interested in doing a workshop with me, keep that in mind. Watch for details on grassfedlife.co. As always, everyone, thanks for listening. Have a wonderful weekend and take care. All right, so next up, I have a question for Ben Falk on controlling insect pest pressure with meat birds. Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Um, the question about... Um, 
meat birds and um, reducing insects, particularly chiggers, it sounded like, um, on your new site. I'm not familiar with chiggers because luckily we don't have them where I live or have ever lived, um, but I am familiar with running various birds, including meat birds, um, and their impact on you know, bug populations on site. Um, you know, I think if you have enough, they do seem to impact bug populations um, positively um, in that they reduce, you know, some bugs that are annoying. Um, but, you know, it's a whole other thing to do. Um, it's a whole management task. And if you're developing a new site, that's kind of the last thing you need um, in the beginning when you're really focusing on your um, on your you know infrastructure, basic infrastructure and other development, um, having just a flock of birds to keep keep track of, take care of, um, is a lot of work extra, which most people can't really do at that stage of development. You might be able to, you know, but just something to think about. And also, um, as far as meat birds, having real like meat beyond a bird um, that you're not feeding pretty regularly or going out of your way with some kind of feed whether you make it yourself or buy it is kind of a tall order it doesn't seem to happen um, I've tried birds that way I'm like oh I'm just not going to feed them much grain and give them like lots of good forage they're you know they weren't birds you could sell I mean we could make soup out of them but they're pretty skinny um, chickens done that way unless you have a very specific piece of land that's really got crazy amounts of bugs like tropics which is where chickens are from um and kind of what they're adapted to with where there's just tons of bug uh, populations to work off of um so those are some things to keep in mind but um yeah just some thoughts uh thanks good luck i was gonna say i, I totally agree on on meat bird production especially dedicated meat birds that if you're not feeding um supplemental uh you're not going to get good yields You're not going to get the ROI you're looking for out of the work you're putting into it. Um, chicken feed doesn't have to be very expensive, even really good quality feed. There's a reason we say it's so cheap. It's as cheap as chicken feed. Um, you do not have to feed when you have good pasture to the level that you would for you know more confinement-level birds. Um, you can probably feed about 30% to 40% of the ration that somebody would feed that was only feeding and not getting the birds out and do just fine, and that gives them enough incentive to want to work. But if you try to not feed or feed very, very limited uh, chicken feed, um, on meat-run birds especially, you're not going to be happy with the results. There's a, there's a big difference. If you have like a small, free-range flock of light-bodied birds for egg-laying, um, with you know, I'm getting some supplemental feed from being given access to compost and stuff like that, Uh, so especially birds that are really survivor-oriented birds like uh, Egyptian faomi is one of the ugliest damn... The roosters are pretty, but the hens are some of the ugliest damn chickens ever created. Um, but, man, they can make a living on some really rough land. Heat-wise, white leghorn has a heat tolerance pretty much more than any other bird. And, and those birds can, can, in the right environment, do okay. Even in that case... I like to feed a little bit because it conditions the bird that you're the source of food. It conditions the bird to where home is, to come home at night, etc. So uh, I always would feed some. I mean, hell, we feed our bees, guys. I think that 
this idea that we can put animals into an artificial situation and then expect them to make a living for themselves is, is really not uh, completely valid for most uh, species. We can do it with, with cattle, definitely with the right land. Cattle can get everything they need from a field, but uh, even in that situation, there's times of the year when we might need to resort to hay and other things. With that, let's take another one, this one on restoring soil. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And this is a question that's been asked by someone called Tactical Redneck. And um, they have a brother that is gardening a plot that has been a garden for God knows how long. The soil is dead. In fact, it's a compliment to call it soil. For someone who knows only how to put seed in the ground, add chemical fertilizer, then water, what guidance would I give them? Um, to soil fertility well uh, using organic techniques of course and um, we could start off with a cover crop if you had time so you could till up the ground a little bit nice and shallow and put in a local agricultural cover crop nice and thick and add very thin amount of mulch on the top about one normal bale of straw to about 40 square meters and get it damp and get that cover crop up that's one sure way to get the roots of the cover crop and some nitrogen in the ground and start adding organic matter. But to fast track that, the quickest way to get that soil fertile is add a good thick layer of compost. The thicker the better, up to about six inches. Most people can't afford that. So I'd say go at least two inches of compost. Um, now, if that soil is really, really hard, get in a broad fork, U-bar, uh, or just an ordinary garden fork and prizing it a little bit. So um, it might be so hard and so dry that you can't do that, so you may have to dampen it or do it after a bit of rain. But get a bit of air into that soil. You don't have to turn it over. You just have to put the broad fork in or the or good, strong gardening fork. Spike it right down as deep as you can and give it a little bit of a prize so it just cracks a fraction because there's probably... Um, a, there could be a lot of compaction and that's a fast track to relieving the compaction. Then the compost on the top, nice and thick. And then about six to eight inches of straw or hay mulch. Don't worry about the hay having seed in it. That's going to make, not make any difference this time and give it plenty of water, right? Make it nice and damp. Now, if you think it's also weedy, you could put a whole load of, of, of newspaper down first, make it Sunday edition newspaper front to back cover thick and get it absolutely sopping wet first, like soak it in a wheelbarrow and put it down as a wet, sloppy, thick newspaper overlapped. Sunday edition front to back cover or three or four layers of cardboard also sopping wet. So that's a sheet mulch that's going to stop any weeds for about, well, at least six months, maybe nine months. Then put your two inches of compost down. Then put your six to eight inches of mulch down. Now, then make little holes in the compost about the size of a coffee mug. You can stick your hand down into it, down to the compost, and wiggle it round and round in a circle. It'll make a sort of circular-like nest in, in, in the mulch. And then fill that up with potting mix, or your seedling potting soil, or just some good soil, or could be some more compost with a bit of soil added, or a seed raising mix, and then put your seed or your seedling into that, in the mulch, sitting on top of the compost. So let me run that through again. It's about the size of a coffee mug of compost. It's going to be sitting about 
50, 25 to 50 millimeters below the top of the mulch. So that's about a one inch to two inches below the top of the mulch, but it's almost a full coffee mug in volume of your soil material that you're going to plant into. It could be soil plus compost. It could be just good soil. It could be seed raising mix. It could be just a general good organic potting mix. And put your seed or your seedling in there and then add lots of moisture with water. Keep, get, keep it nice and moist. Now, because you've got six to eight inches of mulch and you've got two inches of compost, it's going to have a, a one-tenth to one-twentieth water demand to bare soil. So it's going to hold a lot more water. It's going to need less watering. And your soil, soil surface is going to be warmer in winter and cooler in summer, which is all favorable to good microorganisms going to feed the roots of these plants. Now put your plants reasonably close together. Look, look on your planting list of how close certain crops should be. And you can go a little bit closer than that. Just keep making these holes and planting right in there. Soil fertility is going to rise because the compost, the organisms in the good compost you've got are going to come up and get involved in the mulch and start breaking it down. And, and so you're going to convert a lot of the mulch to quite good compost. The compost is going to be quite good soil. The, the, the cardboard and the, and the paper are going to barrier weeds and hold moisture. And they're gradually going to break down over about six months. So if you have any problems with weeds, just separate your mulch, put more newspaper and cardboard down and repeat the layers. Now in six months time, when you want to plant another crop, or you're going to rest it for the winter. Just if you want to do any more work in that garden, add more compost. Add more compost and mulch. Just keep adding compost and mulch and watch that fertility in the soil rise without any other additions. Try and get some quite good compost. Now, if you want to make your own compost, I've got recipes which are 18 days. I've got videos on that on Jeff Lawton online. We've also got the possibility of making compost with chickens. So if you've got chickens nearby, you can make compost heaps that chickens dissemble. You put them back together once a week over five weeks. You've got pretty good compost. You keep adding that compost, one cubic meter of compost, every week. If you have five piles, you've got a pile being, con being constructed every week. You've got a pile ready every week. If you have five in process going all the time, you've got to turn all five once a week. But every week you'll have a cubic meter. You can garden on solid rock. Now, there's no, no problem with this. Right? It's just a matter of finding a convenient way to make compost if you want to make it. And making it with chickens is great because you're adding food scraps, you're adding mulch, and you're adding manure from, from horses or cows. And you don't have to feed your chickens. You're getting free eggs just about high quality compost for very little work and get all the veggies as a consequence. So just get out there and go for it because I've got people in the third world doing this literally on solid rock and, they, and they've got incredible food gardens. So there's no question this will work. So I've actually seen quite a few videos with Jeff um, leading plantings where they, they did exactly what he described there. And, you know, in some of those, they show, you know, six months later type of results, and the results are phenomenal. And if you, if you want a method of just straight-up garden soil management that will work, do what he says, and it'll work just fine. I have nothing to add to that. Um, I will say it's not what everybody's going to do, and it's not 
the way. It's a great way. Uh, I tend not to use weed blocking, but I also tend to do things with mostly raised beds uh, or actually container-style uh, wicking pads. Uh, so my weed action is really easy. And I also start with very good soil. Since I'm having to put fill something, I'm not going to fill it with diluted, denuded soil. So this is a really good method for exactly what, what Tactical Redneck asked about, which is how do I fix something that's broke? What I wanted to append to this really was more about conventional fertilizer. And this is being my big problem with the mass use of conventional fertilizer. I think if you did everything Jeff said to a piece of property and you weren't getting as much growth as you wanted and you threw a freaking shot glass, a 10-10-10, and underneath each plant and watered it in, I think you could do the same thing with organic fertilizer, to be clear. I'm just trying to point something out here. If you did it with you know 10-10-10 conventional fertilizer, I don't think much bad would happen. I really don't. Um I don't think there'd be that much of an effect on soil biology. Certainly nothing that it, if you continued good management practices, the soil wouldn't just become better and better. My grandfather was a conventional organic gardener, I guess is the best way I would describe it. And, and what I mean by that, and some of the stuff he did I wouldn't do, okay? So if the cabbage caterpillars got bad enough on the broccoli plants, they might get dusted with, with seven dust. Um, for a day or two, and then we, we would go down and rinse it all off. And I realized that goes in the soil. And again, that's one of those things I wouldn't do. But in the end, I mean, he had a really successful garden. It fed a lot of people, and I guarantee you the food was better quality than anything in the store. But the other thing he would do is he would use conventional fertilizer. Uh, we also used an awful lot of mulch and an awful lot of compost. And there would just be, oh, those plants look like they're not quite getting what they need. You know, and, and you're, you're talking again about, and in fact, it's what I used was a little shot. It's what I use today still, probably for the same reason. I have my, one of my little stainless steel shot glasses, and, and it would just be go down. Oh, the peppers look sad. Give each one of them a little shot glass and water it in. And I can tell you that that soil was incredibly good soil. There were just times of the year that maybe that pepper plant was stressed and it wasn't able to get to it. And, and what I would use today is something like Dr. Earth 444 for that. But... That's not the big the, – the big problem isn't that we use commercial fertilizer. It's that we use it to the exclusion of other things, and then the soil biology goes to hell, um, and we, we end up in situations like we have some of the pecan orchards here in Texas. They've been dumping that shit on there for years and years and years with no soil management practices, and they keep diagnosing the trees with deficiencies uh, in, in potassium. And uh, I'm sorry, phosphorus. It's phosphorus is the one. Um, and and you know they're they're dumping NPK on there left and right. And there's if you test the amount of phosphorus in the soil, there's butt tons of it from the conventional fertilizer. But the trees are still showing the deficiencies. And what has happened is the soils become so poor that the trees are unable to access even that type of, of rock phosphorus that's generally immediately available to the plant because we've ignored the soil because we could get away with it. And so when you hear me kind of rail against conventional fertilizer, understand it's the soil management practices that it leads to. Because if, you know, if I just need to throw an extra 10 pounds per acre or whatever this year, I'll do it. It's cheap. And, and, and that mentality, whether it's a home gardener, 
uh, somebody container gardening or a farmer, a two-acre, you know, a small-scale farmer or a 5,000-acre corn farmer, that's what leads to denuded soils, the belief that we can just keep taking and not put anything back. So just wanted to throw that in there for you. That brings me to uh, to my segment for the day, which is kind of a fun one, as we are very close to episode 2,500. So ironically, this is Tactical Rednecks Day. This uh, this, is, this question uh, came from him as well, just like the one that Jeff happened to answer for today. But he got lucky. I didn't plan it that way. Uh, Jeff just happened to get the question at the right time for it to work out like this. So here is what, what Tactical Redneck, otherwise known as Chris, has to say. Um, I sent a question in for the expert council members. I forgot to include a question for you. So what is your name? What is your quest? What is the terminal airspeed velocity of a coconut-laden swallow? <clears throat> But seriously, as you approach episode 2500, what were your intentions when you decided to do this full-time? And where are, is it where you thought it would be? And do you, where do you see TSP going in the future? Let's start with the uh, quest from the Holy Grail questions. What is my name? Well, Jack Spirica. What is my quest? To educate, entertain, and empower people. What is the terminal air speed velocity of a coconut-laden swallow? Zero miles per hour. A swallow is not capable of getting off the ground with a coconut. Anyway, um, let's answer the core question here. As I approach episode 2,500, what were my intentions when I started to do this full-time, started out to decide to do it full-time? So when I started this show, um, I was in my car, and I talked probably a lot more about politics back then because it was something easy to have new material every day, but I talked a lot about solutions right from the beginning. And I always felt that if you were only pointing to problems, that you were just part of the problem, unless you were giving people concrete things that they could do. And, and this is very important to the philosophy of TSP over the years, now being over 11 years. I don't mean theory. I mean things they can go do now. So, well, if we did this, and if we did that, and if we did this, you know, if the uh, you know ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. I don't remember where that's from, but it's true. Like, so, you know, we can come up with all these ideas that could make society better, Or we can look at the stuff that normal people can pick up and do right now. So I started out with that mindset. And I really did start this show because I had a client who wanted a podcast. And I won the job. I went up and met with this guy and uh, put a bid in on his project. And you know got all the – it was a website design. It was creative development. It was marketing and messaging and setting up the site. So it would also be a blog and a podcast. And my web developer at the time did not know how to do a podcast and get the feeds and all like that. I'm like, just, you know, we got so much to do for this. Just get to work on it. I'll figure that part out. So when I looked into doing it, it was really easy. And I thought, well, I've been yelling at the radio. I'd listen to people like Clinton Beck and stuff like that in the mornings and some of the local uh, right-wing talking heads on the afternoon coming home. And I'd yell back at them and thought, maybe it should be more productive if I actually talk to somebody. So when I figured this out... I'll come up with something, and I just came up with the idea of doing this. Self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty have always been very important to me. And so I came up with the idea and said I might as well do something with it. I thought it would be a, an interesting thing to do, and it would be a nice little side income. So I, I figured some way or another I'd monetize it. I know I can speak. I've spoke my whole career. Let's get on it. Let's get it to happen. And it was probably about two weeks into it that I knew that this was going to be something I'd do for the rest of my life. And it's funny because I had like 15 listeners at that point, but I knew it. I could tell, 
and I could tell that I wasn't that good yet, but I was going to get really good at it. And so I made a goal for myself for one year from that point, which would have been about August 2nd, about my birthday of that year, um, to, 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 to do that, to get, get to that point. And um, about a year later, I could have. In fact, I tried to. I, I went to my business partner, Neil, and told him that I wanted to, to walk away. This would have been about June. This would have been about right at one year of the show, um, not even from the point that I made that decision. And uh, he said, I, I really need your help. Um, one of the companies is really floundering. We need to have someone step in as COO. You can step back some from your other things, but if you'll take this on and do this for six months before you go, I would really appreciate it. And Neil's always been good to me, and that was a reasonable request. And so I agreed to do that, and I worked through the rest of the year. And it was January 1st, or January 2nd, I think, of 2010 that I did the first full-time episode. In other words, I was not going back to work. And at the time that I was doing all that and getting to that point, and even at that point, my goal was simply to be able to do this thing in a way that would allow me to work for three or four hours a day and earn enough money to pay all our bills and then just live my life and not give a damn. That was my intention. By the time I got there, it was too late for me. I had I'd lost the opportunity uh, for it to be that. So you might think, no, but wait a minute, Jack, isn't that exactly what happened? You miss the three or four hours a week or three or four hours a day thing. Um, my goal was not to make this an all-encompassing, all-consuming part of my life. It was going to be the thing that pays the bills, freeing me up to do whatever else I wanted to do. But as I developed the show, I realized that what I wanted to do was teach people. That it was really the thing I'd always wanted to do. When I'd been pushed, you know, even in high school, when I was being talked to about college, because, boy, a smart kid like you should go to college, that crap. Um, well, what would you do? I'd want to be a teacher. Even as a kid, I used to say that. And throughout my life, whenever I got into a position where somebody said, well, I don't understand this, and I could make them understand it, I could help them understand it, and I would see that, that switch go on in their mind where they had gone from complete lack of understanding of something to not only understanding it but being able to act on it. It's the most fulfilling thing that I can say I have in my life other than family and maybe growing, growing food. I mean... Uh, and when you teach somebody to grow food, then that's really, you know, like the ultimate. Or, or because of what you said, they're, they're, they're being a better father or husband or wife or mother. I mean, those are like, then it all comes together. So what happened was this became everything to me, uh, not just because it pays the bills, but because it lets me fulfill the thing that I'm most concerned about. So I put a lot more than three or four hours a day into this show, even though I built it probably putting, you know, um, about that into it, I would get up and do my outlines at three or four o'clock in the morning and be out the door, you know, by six, six thirty, and be on the road and, and record the show in forty-five minutes to an hour because that's how long the drive, drive took in the morning. I would do the editing in about five minutes at my office because I could, and I would upload it, and that show would go to bed for the day, and I would just answer some emails and stuff in the evening. So it is completely possible that I could have been where I am economically right now without doing all the other things and worked a lot less and maybe even been more successful because there was something simpler about the show at the time. It was shorter. It was generally 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, it was really, really simple, and it fit for most people, and it was 
not so specialized, so it was a little bit more broad. And so I think that I would be bigger today had I stuck with that. But I don't think I'd be as happy, and I don't think I would have the impact on people's lives that I do. So is it the way that I thought it would be? No. It's much bigger and much better in so many ways. There was no plan for an expert council. That wasn't a thing. It wasn't like, well, one day I'll get together a group of people. And, you know, but I had always had that Rolodex of people I could rely on in my business uh, where it was somebody would say, well, what about this? And I, would, I don't know, but I know who knows. Right? And in most successful entrepreneurs, that's, that's how you live. You can't know everything, so you know the people that know or you know the people that will know. Right, So what I mean by that, either I know when I call Tom, Tom's going to know, or I know Tom will know somebody that knows this thing. Right, So that was a natural extension, but it just came from really great guests and really great contributors to the show and saying, hey, this is a good idea. The, the, the membership program uh, that I built, I think was the first of its kind in podcasting, and now is emulated by a lot of other podcasters. Um, I knew of membership programs. I, I saw how they worked. But when I started the show, I wasn't like, this is my monetization. It was like... Wait a minute, I sold all my sponsorships. Now I need to do something with all these other people that want to support the show as sponsors, and how can I make this work for everybody? So where do I see it going? Um, the, the beautiful answer to that is I don't know. I don't know. I, I would love to say that right now we've kind of found what we're doing, and it's this you know, for at least another 10 years or more. Um, but it's changed so many times in so many ways that I'm really looking forward to what happens next. I mean, even the show format has changed, you know, even in the last six years a couple different times with the history segments and stuff like that. And I'm kind of trying to find a new groove right now. Uh, and I, summer's like the worst time to implement a new system. So I'm hoping as we go into fall to get that systemization down to one special segment a day and have them be different each day of the week and be consistent with the quote of the week, the thing that happened in history this you know, this week and, 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 and things like that. Um, but my hope is that I continue to get emails telling me I'm a jerk. My hope is that I continue to hear from people saying they're killing it with a business they started. My hope is that I continue to get pictures of people's gardens, that I continue to get pictures of people's kids that are growing up, living this lifestyle and, and turning into something amazing, and realize that I probably one of the most rewarding things to me now is that I've had a couple times reached out to by people that are in their early 20s that their parents started listening to this when they were in their early teens. And they've grown into adults while this show has done what it's done. And that, that really puts the time in perspective because as we get older, time condenses for us. It moves faster. And it just seems like yesterday that I climbed into that car, but so much has happened. So this is a great question, Tactical. Thank you for asking it. And I really do hope that it... Uh, the, the, the answer kind of gives the folks that listen to this show an understanding of how important this show is to me and how important y'all are to me and the fact that you let me do the thing that I, I really do believe I was born to do, to teach, to entertain, and to inspire. And, you know, if you can live your life doing that, I think you're, you're, you're doing something right. So I appreciate the opportunity that all of y'all have given me in doing that. With that, hey, did you like today's show? I, I hope so. Um, it's one that I've been kicking around different aspects of for uh, quite a few weeks now. I was happy to get it out to you. If you want to support us so that we're always here to provide content like that for you, consider doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, where you can find all of our reviews on Amazon. You can check out the Amazon deals of the day. Anything and everything 
And remember, if it's there, I recommend it. I use it. It's in my life, and I've tested it. And if it doesn't pass that muster, it doesn't get on my site. It doesn't go to tspaz.com. Today I have something for you that many of you that have been around for a while will be familiar with uh, when it comes to small batch mead making. Uh, it is my combination of two yeasts that everybody says I'm wrong about, and I'm not wrong, and it does what I say it does. And today I get to tell you that I've actually figured out why it does what I say it does, and that is Red Star Premier Cuvée Yeast cobbled up with Red Star Premier Blanc. Now, those of you that have heard me say this in the past, did he say Premier Blanc? I did because they changed it. There was Pasteur Blanc, and there was Pasteur Champagne. And this confused people. So Red Star changed the name uh, of Pasteur Blanc to Premier Blanc to make a better um, differential between the two is what I think they did. I contacted Red Star, and Premier Blanc is the yeast that I've been recommending for three years now to go along with Cuvée. Now, most people say you pitch a single variety of yeast, And if you pitch two, one dominates the other. And eh, not so much. So long ago, I started making small batch, one-gallon mead uh, batches. And I started pitching these two together. I just did it one day. Like, hmm, I wonder what happens if you put the two in together. Boom, let me see. Explosive fermentation. Very quick finish. Love what it did for the meat. And I always just said, you know, it's a happy accident. I don't really care why. But my, my gut is that... One does something better than the other, and together they're more than the sum of their parts. And I thought, you know what, Jack, you, you, you've been doing this for three years. Why don't you get off your ass and do a little research and find out what's going on? So that, this makes perf perfect sense. They're both actually quite fast fermenters. But Cuvée is a quicker fermenter than Blanc. It, it's a faster uh, fermenting yeast. But it tops out at 15%, which means that's as far as it can go. At, at 15%, 0.1, uh, the yeast die. It's done, it shuts down. The Blanc's a little bit slower, but it's also qu uh, quick. It brings out the fruity esters, so it, it, it gets all the alcohol it can without stripping the flavor. Both of them do that, so they have that in combination. But it can go to 18%, but it's a little bit slower in its fermentation. Now, this is the important thing to understand. A yeast that can get to 15% will probably get to 12% faster than it gets from 12% to 15%. It's reaching its limits of what it can do, so it slows down. So the cuvee gets off to a much faster start than the Blanc, but as the cuvee begins to reach its tolerance point, the Blanc takes over and finishes the race. Okay. Now, here's where the magic comes in, where this is just a dumb luck selection that turned into something really great. The limit to what the Blanc can do is 18% alcohol. Which means when you get up to about 13% and the cuvee's really slowing down, the Blanc is still in its stride and can take it right across 15%, 16%, where then it's going to be begin to slow down and get its last little bit. Well, how do I make my meat? What's my standard formula? Three pounds of honey to the gallon. And what does that give you? There's always variances, but in general, it gives you a 15% meat. Three pounds of honey to the gallon gives you 15%. What else do I usually do? Most of my meats have a fruit adjunct. Most of them are, 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 are melamals. I'm doing something like persimmon or elderberry or blueberry or blackberry. There's some sugar contribution there. So most of my meats are like 15.5% to 16.5%. The cuvee can't get there alone, but it gets 
close to being done faster, and the Blanc can take it the rest of the way. And that's why this has worked so well for me. And even when I do something like Three Flowers Blend, the herbs aren't giving much of a sugar contribution, but you still have that little kick to get from that 14 to that 15 to 15-1, whatever it is in the end. So my gut as to why these worked is exactly why they worked all along. Now I have the scientific explanation as to why, and maybe I'll stop getting beat up by mead makers that say I'm wrong, even though my mead is pretty awesome. I think your mead can be awesome too. Check out this yeast combination the next time you're making, especially, you know, a, you know if you're making a, a, a mead that's going to be 7%, 8%, either one's fine. You're going to make a mead that's going to be, you know, up there. You're going to make some of that Viking mead. Uh, give my combination a try. I think you'll like it. And uh, you can find the article and all the other cool stuff at T-Spaz by going there. With that, let's go into our song of the day today. And I looked at what was left. And I'm going to tell you the truth. I was going to do Come On, Feel the Noise today. Which, if I say that, the first thing you think of is Quiet Riot, right? Especially if you're an 80s kid like me. Well... Slade is a is a band out of the UK that did that song back in the 70s, about 10 years before Quiet Riot released it. And when I went to grab it off of YouTube the way that I do, um, I found that this uh, a version by Slade was unavailable. Um, they were all taken down for some reason, some kind of copyright infringement thing or something like that. Maybe Slade doesn't want their music up there. I don't know. Um, But I could find some live versions that were not good. I'll just leave it at that. Um, so then it left me with what is the other song that's on John's list of covers uh, that were more popular than the originals this week and playing the originals, right? Uh, so if I said Black Magic Woman, most people that are at least as old as me or a little bit older immediately can hear the guitar to that and the sound of that and they think Santana. What if you? What if I told you that that's not the original version of the song? And the original version of the song is only about a year before Santana released it in seventy one in nineteen seventy six nine seventy. Fleetwood Mac is actually the source of this song, and uh, uh, one of their members uh, is actually the author of it. And I won't say a lot about it because this song is actually one of those songs. It's the epitome of music from this time. There's no deep meaning to this song. There's no really, you know, expansive lyrics to this song. It's it's three or four phrases repeated over and over. It's still friggin' awesome. So what a great way to end a Friday. And now, baby, you learned something today. Maybe you learned that Black Magic Woman didn't come from Santana. Uh, in fact, um, Santana said that he loved Fleetwood Mac. Carlos Santana was a huge fan of Fleetwood Mac in the late 60s. And, in fact, his whole thing started out as really a blues band, a lot like Fleetwood Mac started out. And it kind of morphed into its own thing, and you know, him becoming known as one of the greatest guitarists of all time, which I agree with, by the way. Uh, but this song is actually like, you know when I played Bruce Springsteen? Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I still can't believe I, may, I, I was willing to play that version of Blinded by the Light. I mean, it's just awful. This one isn't that way. The original, I'm not going to say it's better. And whenever there's like an original and a cover, depending on which one you grew up with, you always think one's better than the other. But it's really good. And it's just a great song, especially for those of you that are on your way home today. 
to listen to in the car, because I know many of you listen to the Friday shows that way. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Yes, I got a black magic woman Got me so blind I can't see But she's a black magic woman And she's trying to make a devil out of me Don't turn your back on me, baby Don't turn your back on me, baby Yes, don't turn your back on me, baby You're messing Spell on me, baby. You got your spell. On-